Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. This week, I'm happy to say we have Toby Green on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, The Rise of the Transatlantic Slave Trade in Western Africa, 1300 to 1589. I was just talking with Toby, and I said, he said, why'd you pick this book? Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel, and each week we scour the internet looking for interesting books. This week, I'm happy to say we have Toby Green on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, The Rise of the Transatlantic Slave Trade in Western Africa, 1300 to 1589. I was just talking with Toby, and I said, he said, why'd you pick this book? And I said, I picked this book because it's an extraordinarily important topic, and I know nothing about it which that's not good for, you know, the citizenry that I don't know anything about this. And I'm a professional historian. So I hope that you find it interesting, and I'm sure that you will. And let me thank Toby for writing the book and welcome him to the show. Hello. Hello, Marshall. All right. Well, I'm glad you're with us today. Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, Well, I'm a historian now. I teach in London at King's College London. Um, I specialize in African history, West African history in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, its responses to Atlantic trade. Um, I started off life uh, as a, after I graduated, I did my first degree in philosophy. I graduated, I won a travel scholarship and I I started off life as a travel writer. I wrote two travel books one about South America, one about West Africa. And after the book about West Africa, I became more and more interested in the history, uh, how West Africa came to be as it is today. So that was why I started a PhD when I was almost 30 um, at the Centre of West African Studies in in Birmingham University. And I've carried on from there, really. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us why you wrote uh, The Rise of the Transatlantic Slave Trade in Western Africa, 1300 to 1589. And by the way, one thing I really like about the title of your book is it doesn't have a semicolon in it. (laughs) <laughs> well, no, I, do my best, I do my best to please readers. You know. um, why did I write the book? Well, I, when I started doing my PhD research, which was on a related subject, but, but not specifically on this subject, um, one of the things which I found really surprising and surprised me as somebody who came to academic research relatively late in life was that there was no monograph, there was no detailed study of the origins of the transatlantic slave trade. And um, and there's plenty of plenty of books on the say on the on the west on the Atlantic slave trade in the 18th century, and of course a lot of work on abolition. But on the early period, there was really there was really very little. There were some detailed studies of related aspects, quite a lot in Portuguese, because a lot of the original sources are in Portuguese. But again, those books were often written partly uh, during the during the dictatorship in Portugal in the 1960s and 1970s. So they they weren't grounded in the kind of debates that current uh, history is. And, and so I felt there was just a, it was really surprising. I mean, actually, I, I do now know why no, no, there wasn't a detailed monograph on this subject, which is that it took me 10 years to write. Uh, it required me to travel halfway from the world and... Uh, it, and ferret out bits of information in archives which claim not to have any. For example, one of the archives I used was um, 
the archive of the Indies in Seville, which was the colonial archive for Latin America. And when I went there the first time, they said, well, where are you researching? And I said, well, I'm looking at the history of Cabo Verde. And they said, ah, we don't have a, a section of documentation on Cabo Verde. So this was the kind of thing which I, was, which I came up against. So it was really a bit like being a detective, um, finding information in very di- many, many different sources all over the place. And that's why it took such a long time. So now I do know why no such book had been written. But that was how I came to think that... I, you know, this was a subject which deserved a book to be written about. And as you said, Marshall, you know, isn't it, it's a very important subject. Yeah. So uh, let me give you a brief sketch of what I knew about the origins of the Atlantic slave trade. And this will be a, sort of a caricature. Um, and then you can tell us what modern historians think about it. And then you can tell us what you think about it. So what I knew was that the Portuguese set off in the 15th century. They went south. They uh, got all the way to, like, the Gold Coast or someplace like that. They found these Africans. These Africans were already trading slaves, and they thought, geez, this will be great. It just so happens that these Spaniards are across the ocean, and we'll start taking slaves to them now, and they'll sort of set this up. That, that's, that's what I knew from – I don't know where I knew that from. Yeah. And I don't know if any of it's correct. Now, what, so, so starting with that, where is that – you know, it's, it's, okay, so I mean, the, 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 well, how, I mean, how do we unpick this? There are so many different levels of, 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 of the history here. I mean, the first, the first thing to start with, I think, is the, is the concept of the idea of Africa in this, con- in, the, in, in this picture. There's a wonderful book by a Congolese philosopher called uh, Valentin Mudimbe called The Invention of Africa. Now, if we take ourselves right back to the mid-15th century, which is when Portuguese voyages along the Atlantic co- uh, coast of Africa began... Uh, Africa is not a concept. You know, people don't know the geographical outlines of Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and somebody living in what's now Senegal has as much in common, or actually less in common with somebody living in, um, say, Tanzania than they did with somebody in Portugal. Because actually what was in common, as I talk about in the book, between somebody in Senegal and somebody in Portugal was Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, Senegal was uh, the, the, the elites, the ruling elites in Senegal were Muslims by the 15th century. And of course, there's been a long history of Islam in Spain um, and in Portugal uh, with the reconquest uh, uh, it, during the, from the whole medieval period. So actually, what we think of as Europe and Africa had, mu- in the case of sort of Senegal and Portugal had much more in common than somebody in Senegal would have had with somebody, say, in Tanzania or South Africa. And so the idea of Africa, which is what Mudimbe's book is about, was invented, really. And it emerged out of the history of trade between the African continent and the rest of the world. Um, and so when it comes back to where, where this trade started and how it began, somebody, for example, on the Gold Coast, as you say, in Ghana, um, and somebody, for example, in Senegal, uh, would have had really quite little in common, even at that time. Um, and so, in many ways, when the Portuguese arrived, this idea that, for example, there was already a slave trade of Africans selling Africans, that's a misnomer, because, of course, it wasn't seen like that. It wasn't African... People in Senegal didn't see themselves as Africans selling other Africans. They thought themselves as people belonging to the Jolof, the Mandinka, the Fula tribes, who themselves were waging wars against their enemies and then fight, and then selling war captives as slaves. So... The definition of slave, the definition of Africa, all these things, are, as soon as you start looking at it in detail, become quite complicated. Mm-hmm. So that's my version. What do, um, and you may not be able to characterize this, I don't know. Your book is uh, revisionist in a way. Uh, but what do um, your colleagues or what is the received view on the origins of the uh, transatlantic slave trade? That is prior to your book. What are you arguing against or you're trying to mm, adjust or amend? 
there were there were many there are several schools which have really emerged in the last um, forty years. One of the main things which emerged in the in the late nineteen sixties with the, a famous historian called Philip Curtin was the quantification of the slave trade. How what was the magnitude of the slave trade? How many Africans enslaved Africans crossed the Atlantic, and what impact did that have on the African continent and, of course, on the New World? Well, one of the things I the first perhaps revisionist element of the book is that first of all i i I bring new evidence from my archival detective work to suggest that the volume was much larger at the beginning of the slave trade than had previously uh, been suggested and then i i show through social changes and transformations in west africa uh, at that time uh, what the how the impact of that larger trade is manifested in social changes in at that time so that's one of the first things um another major feature of the book is that i look particularly at social structures i look at how there were already existing social structures in west africa which came out of the trans-saharan trade so for a long time you'd had already since the 11th century quite an active trade across the sahara particularly for gold actually uh, most of the gold in north africa and in europe at this time came from west africa um, but also in, in ivory and in slaves, um, and how the social structure which you had in West Africa was set up, basically, for long-distance trade. It was set up for long-distance trade from people coming from a long way away, in, in the previous case from North Africa across the desert, and they would have trading communities, diaspora trading communities, which were embedded in the local communities. And so when you have the Atlantic trade coming, um, when the Portuguese first arrived, there's already a social structure in place which will welcome long-distance traders like the Portuguese, allow them to have families, allow them to mix and settle into the community. And that's exactly what happened. They developed these mixed communities, Afro- African and Portuguese, the so-called Luso-Africans, uh, and those communities became the bedrock of trade. They were like go-betweens between the Atlantic traders and Africans. And, and so what my book also argues is very importantly that the social structure of West Africa was was fundamental in, in allowing that long-distance trade to take place in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, a concept that is very important to the book is creolization. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So creolization is, is basically the manifestation of those mixed communities. So how... How do you develop a community, a community where, for example, you may not have no shared language, where you have very different social norms? Well, one of, well, of course, the way you do it is you develop a kind of go-between community, a community which can relate both to both hosts, to both the Africans and to the Portuguese. And so how do you know that that sort of community has arisen? Well, one of the ways you know is the development of a different language, like a Creole language. Of course, Creole languages are well-known from the Americas, from the Caribbean, from places like Haiti, islands like Curaçao. There's, even in the American South, there's Gula Creole. Um, so you have that in the region of Cape Verde, and you have that in the region of Senegal, Guinea-Bissau, Gambia. From a very early time, we know that there was a Creole language spoken um, and that that's still there, actually. Creole is still, it's, it's the national language in Cape Verde, and it's the main lingua franca in what's now Guinea-Bissau. So you have the development of this community built around a new shared language, which allows people to communicate and allows people to form a new mixed community. And so, and, and the idea is that that kind of creolization had already begun through the trans-Saharan trade, where you had long-distance traders also intermarrying in West African communities, also developing uh, mixed social frameworks and using the Mandinga language as a main lingua franca. 
Um, and so that 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 what what uh, one uh, Brazilian sociologist calls primary creolization was already there and was key to enabling the mixed communities of the Atlantic world to develop. And of course, that was a, a very important step in the emergence of modern societies. Because if you look at new world societies, they're they're creole societies, they're mixed societies, they mix peoples from all over the world, from Europe, of course, from the Americas, Native Americans, but of course, many, many Africans, and many of those frameworks intermixed. And so the argument of the book really is that that framework, that Creole framework actually begins in West Africa. Mm -hmm. So the picture then that we should have is a place in which there are lots of different kinds of people, culturally speaking, Mm -hmm. uh, who communicate with one another through a Creole or communicate uh, with uh, foreigners, I guess we could call them that, uh, through a Creole, and this already exists when the Portuguese show up. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Well, you already, well, you, well, you have, well, what you have is you have Mandinga, which is the, which is the general lingua mm-hmm. franca in that region, because um, so you have in the, in the, let's take it a step back. You have in West Africa, prior to the Portuguese arriving, so in the 13th and the 14th centuries, you have the major empire, which is known as the Mali Empire, mm-hmm. and that has that's based in that covers what's now Mali. Uh, the Republic of Guinea, parts of Senegal and Gambia, and it stretches right down to the coast. And so the language of that empire, which is Mandinga, uh, is is like everybody's second language. It's the lingua franca of the whole region. And even today, if you go to Senegal, uh, you'll find that a lot of people will speak Mandinga, even though they may not. that may not be their first language. So you have that as a lingua franca. Um, now, also, you, you have very importantly Arabic. So how do the Portuguese first communicate with people in Senegal or Gambia or Guinea-Bissau? Well, of course, as I've mentioned, the, the, many of the rulers are Islamic and there are Arabic scholars there. And of course, you've had this history of Arabic in Portugal and Spain. You've had the long history of Islam in, in Spain and Portugal, which means that there are Arabic speakers among the Portuguese. So actually, Arabic is also a very important first lingua franca. Then you have the settlement of the Cape Verde Islands in the late 15th century from the 1460s onwards. And that's where you get the Portuguese Creole developing. That's where you have enslaved Africans coming from West Africa to the Cape Verde Islands and developing a lingua franca with the Portuguese, mixing in general uh, Portuguese vocabulary with Arabic grammar. Uh, sorry, with African, African grammatical structures. That's how you have the emergence of the Creole language. And then what, you, what I show in the book is how you have a constant crisscrossing the Cape Verdes. People in the Cape Verdes are constantly moving back and forth, not only to the coast of Africa, because it's about 500 miles from Cape Verde to the African coast, but also to the Americas. And so that Creole language, which forms in Cape Verde, then moves to the African coast and becomes a lingua franca there as well. Mm-hmm. Does it have a name? You say it still exists in Cape Verde. It's called, it's called in Cabo Verde, it's called uh, Creole. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And there are lots of speakers of it, even today. It's the, well, it's the main. It's well, it's 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 the language in Cabo Verde in Cape Verde. Um, but each island has a different uh, has a different variant, uh, and that depends on the subsequent histories of the of the island. So, for example, the island of Brava. I gather you're in um, you're in Massachusetts, Marshall. Mm-hmm. There are me- and there's a big Cape Verdean community as we were talking about yeah. when we came on air in, in 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 Massachusetts in the Boston area, many of whom originate from uh, the tiny island of Brava, uh, which is the smallest inhabited island in Cape Verde. But in the 19th century, the whaling ships from New England often called to the Cape Verdes to pick up Cape Verdean crew, um, and so. There's, so, for example, the Creole of Brava has a lot of English words in it as a result of this. So there are little variants like that among the Creoles of the islands. Mm-hmm. But, um, but, but it's, it's, the main, it's the main language of Cabo Verde. Mm-hmm. So is it proper to think then 
of the origins of the, um, let's not call it transatlantic, let's call it Atlantic slave trade, then is the trade back and forth between Cape Verde and the coast run by the Portuguese? As what, Well, I mean, if you were looking at origins, yes, I think that that's the first starting point. Um, and yes. There were plantations you know, on you Cape Verde, right? colonization of the Cape Verde Islands, you have... Um, and you have the you know you have a you have a need for labor. I mean, let's also remember that the real origin as well of the Atlantic slave trade is the need for labor. You know, why do you have a mass slave trade? One of the things I mentioned in the book: why do you have a mass slave trade from Africa to the Americas? Because the Native American population begins to go into sharp decline as soon as the Spanish arise and arrive, and there's and there's there's not enough labor in the in, in, in the Americas. Uh, and the same is the case in Cape Verde. You, you don't actually have a population in Cape Verde before the. Um, Portuguese arrival is not settled and inhabited. So, if you're going to start a colony there, uh, you need to you need to find labour from somewhere. Now, actually, we should also remember that Portugal in the 15th century does not have a large population. It's only a century after the Black Death, uh, which is you know in the middle 14th century, and the population is in recovery. In fact, the first slave trade is not only to Cape Verde but also to Europe, to Portugal. Uh, and the African population who come to Portugal are very important in providing labour, as we see from a whole lot of sources. They provide labour in the docks. They provide labour-clearing forests. So labour is at the heart of it. And um, and, and in Cape Verde, there, there's no population, so you have to import the labour from somewhere. Mm-hmm. Now, so as Portugal has a, has a small population, and, and Cape Verde is actually... Um, somewhere with a completely different climate and somewhere which people would be, in many, in many cases, might be scared to go to. It's, it's obviously, if you can, better to bring the labour from Africa. So that's the beginnings of the slave trade. And then, of course, as that picture of a lack of labour develops when you have the discovery of the Americas in the late 15th century. So, that's, so you have the Cape Verde settled in the 1460s, and then, of course, Columbus reaches the New World in the 1490s. And then that picture of an absence of labour again becomes clear 10, 15 years later after that, then you have a similar process developing of the need for labor being paramount. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about the religious landscape. You're very interested in culture, and um, some questions occurred to me. One is that um, how did uh, Muslims and Christians, these uh, Portuguese were Christian, obviously, Mm -hmm. how did they get along? Was there any any sort of religious conflict there? Well, I mean, it's not actually the case that all the Portuguese were Christians. I mean, one one of the things about the book is is, is that quite a lot of some of the sources come from Inquisition archives. There was actually a large um, Inquisition. The Inquisition, although it's famous as an Iberian institution, a Spanish and Portuguese institution, and of course a Roman institution, uh, actually was concerned with the former colonies, with, with, with the colonies of those countries. And so there were Inquisition cases taken in West Africa, and particularly against um, the people who were known as New Christians. New Christians, yes. That was yeah, so these were, these were people of Jewish origin whose families were forcibly converted. So all the Jews in Portugal were forcibly converted to Christianity by Manuel I in 1497. And their descendants were known as new Christians to distinguish them from people who'd always been in Christian families who were called the old Christians. Now, many now there were many restrictions placed on the new Christian population by Manuel I after they were converted. There were many things they couldn't do. And so many of them tried to emigrate. And places they went to were places like West Africa, where although there were Inquisition cases, the Inquisition was obviously a lot milder than it was in mm-hmm. Portugal itself. New Spain, so, a lot of them went to New Spain. And Spain. So, so first of all, a lot, first of all, you know, that there was a mix of migrants. There were, of course, uh, old Christians, uh, many of them coming from Portugal, but there were also new Christians. And many of the traders who went from Cape, many of the old Christians were t- tended to be in administrative positions in royal functions and stayed on the islands. 
many of the traders were new Christians who, because they couldn't get royal positions, because you, if you were a new Christian, you were barred, they, they became traders. Um, so you had that kind of mix. And actually, the place of Islam is also important because um, in West Africa, as I've said, there were Islamic communities, particularly in what's now Senegal. Uh, and, if, and, and as some of these uh, traders came from Jewish backgrounds, um, Judaism is, of course, recognized as a, as a, as a dimmy, as the people who are Jews in Islamic uh, theocracy, uh, political uh, theology uh, have uh, what's known as dimmy status. That is, they are recognized as they can have a status within uh, a situation. And so, in fact, where you actually have not only new Christians, but uh, openly open Jews settling in Senegal in the early 16th century, late 15th, late, sorry, late 16th, early 17th century, um, they settle in Islamic areas because they're recognised by the kings Joloff from within that framework. Whereas where there weren't Islamic kingdoms, where there were African religions, um, that seems to have been an area where, provided that people were prepared to adapt to African religions, to African social structures, to intermarry with usually uh, daughters of royal family, African royal families, and, and adopt those religions, then anybody could settle. So you have both old and new Christians settling there. Mm-hmm. But certainly, I think it's, you raise a very important point that, you know, belief and religion and ritual, that's a fundamental part of the landscape at this time. You know, I mean, this is not a secular world, you know, at the heart of what everybody does is, is belief. And mm-hmm. that's very important. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the reasons I ask is my understanding of uh, medieval Islam is that slavery is an accepted institution. It has been religiously um, authorized. Uh, No one thinks that there is anything uh, irreligious or bad about it, and it has been done for hundreds of years. Uh, This is not really true in uh, Western Europe. I don't don't know, you know, again, um, you can, if you're uh, if you're if you're a Bible scholar, you can go back into the Old Testament and find uh, a mm-hmm. lot about slavery. But the New Testament it doesn't; it's not in the spirit of the New Testament. So you know, we're right here at the origins of it. I wondered if they had any theories thinking about it. Well, I mean, of course, very very interesting. You should raise those questions, which are of course very important. But if, as soon as mass slavery does start in the Atlantic world, people, of course, do uh, immediately turn to questions related to the Old Testament ideas of slavery. You have the Hamitic hypothesis. Yes. Right. Which is which is supposed to justify biblically uh, African enslavement, um, and and so that's what happens. Um, and and in in terms of the relationship between Islam and slavery, I think it's very important that we we don't get confused by the term slavery. Slavery itself refers to many different institutions, and it's actually quite unfortunate that we always use the same word. So slavery. I mean, there's been quite a lot of literature on this subject but so slavery in in west africa very much characterizes a relationship of dependence um but in before the atlantic slave trade somebody who was a domestic slave or a royal slave their children could aspire to becoming part of the extended kinship group Mm. they could aspire to losing that status whereas of course as we know in the atlantic world that was very much not the case um, and that's what, how you get the emergence of a sort of a sort of racial element linked to an institution, which is very different. I mean, what you could say is, whereas in Africa, um, slavery is, is ultimately a way of 
ex of including outsiders, including people who may be war captives or the children of war captives, um, and so who start off within a community as a slave, but then become incorporated into it, and their children can become part of the community. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the Atlantic world, instead of including people in a broader community, slavery is very much a way of excluding people. You exclude people. You um, through the emergence of racial statutes and things like that, which uh, marginalise communities and, and stop them from having the same rights as, as members of the colonial community. So it's a very different institution, I think. So whereas, yes, you might have um, in instances of or a legitimation of slavery within both uh, the Quran and the Old Testament, uh, the ways in which that is then used is, is very different in, a, in the Atlantic context to how uh, slavery was practiced in in West Africa. So coming back to your original point, you know what you, you said what you knew about it originally that slavery slave trading was already going on, and and then it was kind of, that was sort of used by the Portuguese to begin the Atlantic slave trade. Well, that's that's true, but the type of slavery was very different. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I know that in the Russian context, the Russians practiced slavery sure. well into the uh, well uh, well into the 18th century, I think, um, even after it was banned. Uh, the Russians d- did not practice field slavery; they practiced house slavery. So, uh, what, what is the distinction we should make in this context? Well, I think a very important distinction in, in the African context is that slavery is very much connected to kinship. So. It comes right back to family. And, and actually, anthropologists often describe slavery in Africa as a slave in Africa as being somebody who has no kin. So, I mean, that, of course, often will fit the situation of somebody who's a war captive. They're taken away from their kin, they're transported somewhere else, uh, and they don't have a family. Um, and, and so it, it, it's fundamental. And if you don't have a, a kin, you know, you lose all kinds of reproductive rights. You lose all kinds of uh, social rights, really. Um, and, and so that's a very fundamental aspect of it. And, in that, and there's a wonderful anthropologist who's worked on pre-Columbian uh, slavery in the Americas. Uh, he's a, from Panama called Fernando Santos Granero. And he's argued that a very similar structure exists in pre-Columbian America. Um, where, but, but that system of kinship is not fundamentally tied to labor in the same way. I mean, I think the fundamental thing in terms of Atlantic slavery is the relationship between slavery and labor, as I said before, this is very much a question of labour. Why does this massive export of human beings take place? It's in many ways related to labour, and that creates a fundamentally different institution. Mm-hmm. I just wondered how it occurred to the Portuguese to take this institution that they found, which was a kind of slavery, but very different from the kind of slavery that we're used to in, say, the American South, and adapt it to uh, plantation work. Well, I think this is something which develops very importantly, actually, on these Atlantic islands. So it develops in Cape Verde, and it develops in another uh, archipelago, which I don't focus on very much in the book, which is the archipelago of Sao Tome, which is uh, much further south in the Atlantic, adjacent to what's today uh, Gabon and Congo. Um, So what you had in Sao Tome was uh, the emergence of sugar plantations, and, and, and that was actually the way in which this process emerged. You had a slow development of the plantation complex. It started in the Mediterranean. So sugar was originally uh, being grown in islands like Cyprus in the um, eastern Mediterranean, uh, which was under Islamic rule at the time. Um, and, And that process was then transported by the Portuguese first to Madeira, First, the island of Madeira, which they settled in the 1420s and 1430s and also developed sugar plantations on. And when they first um, reached uh, places like Senegal and Guinea-Bissau in the 1450s, 
some of the slaves which they traded went to work on the sugar plantations in Madeira. So that process is beginning there. Then when they reach Sao Tome and begin sugar plantations in the late 15th century, in the 1480s and the 1490s, there's a slave trade already developing with what's um, what's now uh, the nation state of Angola, which was known as the Kingdom of Congo at the time. Uh, and many slaves come from that region to Sao Tome, and that's the first mass sugar plantation complex in the Atlantic world. And And really, so it's a sort of, you could call it, these islands are really seedbeds they're they're, pla- they're they're places to experiment and of course one of the fundamental things about them is that whereas on the atlantic coast of africa as i've mentioned traders had to adapt to african political systems they had to intermarry and develop go between communities creole communities in the islands uh the portuguese are not subject to um african political control they can develop their own uh system as they wish um once they have a labour supply. And so that was really the place where these processes of experimentation were were fundamentally made concrete, and then that was transferred to Brazil. Um, and in the 16th century, you do also have sugar plantations to having it ha- occurring at the same time in the Spanish Empire, in what's the island of Santo Domingo, which is um, the Hispaniola, which is what's now Santo Domingo and, and Haiti. Um, and you have a similar process there. But the fundamental thing is these islands were... Were, were places where both the Portuguese and the Spanish could experiment, and that's how that process of transfer from the Mediterranean with sugar production took place. Mm-hmm. Um, I have what might seem like an odd question, and you might not have the answer. I don't know. So my understanding is that the, the Koran forbids uh, Muslims from enslaving other Muslims. Is that correct? I believe that's the case, but I must say I'm not an expert on... Uh, yeah, I don't know either. Let's just say that um, is the case, though. So... Um, uh, so I wonder if it, and again, you may not know, I wonder if it for, uh, forbids uh, um, uh, a Muslim from becoming the slave of a Christian. Well, I think that's simply, uh, from what I know, that's not envisaged as a possibility within the Quranic scripture. Because uh-huh. yeah, it, right. it, it, it has the concept of the dhimmi, which is the Christians who live subordinate to Islamic rule, but not the, not the obverse. Now, and it's very interesting that you raise that point, because... As I think you, you, the reason you do so, because some of the first slaves who went to the New World were Islamic. They were. Yeah, they were, this is this Jolof, is why I do. Yes. Yeah, from the yeah. Jolof people, uh-huh. and and as you as you as you imply, when they first arrived in the New World, they were the they were the most serious rebels on the island of Hispaniola, which I've just been talking about. In the by the by the end of the fifteen ten, so in about fifteen nineteen. They are constantly fermenting revolts. And in fact, in the 1520s, a series of uh, imperial decrees are passed by the Spanish Empire, by Charles V, uh, banning the import of Jolof slaves. Uh-huh. And it does seem to be this, that it's, it's in part the fact that they are Islamic, which, um, which, which creates that, ferments that, uh, that, that rebelliousness. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that is exactly why I asked the question, because I, I can imagine that the Islamic authorities were uh, probably a little bit taken aback when, or they were offended by uh, the enslavement of their uh, religious fellows. But that leads to another question. How did the Portuguese get the slaves when they first uh, arrived? Well, what did also, they tra- how did they do that? It should also be mentioned that um, the other thing about the Jolof was that they, they had a very important military history. They, they had a very large uh, cavalry. They had a very, you know, they, they were, as I mentioned, trading across the Sahara for a long time for, um, and then among the goods they got were, was weaponry. So so it might also have been that they had that military capability already, partly mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Saharan trade. Mm-hmm. How did they get the slaves? Well, I mean, it's very interesting. You know, at, at first um, they tried 
the, in the 1440s, they tried raids. You know, they tried to. There was a history of raiding along the north, along the coast of what's now Mauritania and in Senegal. And then when they reached the Gambia River in the late 1440s, they had a military standoff and they couldn't actually. Def- they, they, they lost. They were beaten by the Mandinga. Uh, of the Gambia, because you know, let's remember, you know, the the, techn- the military technology of, of, of the Portuguese, the military technology, these terribly old rifles, uh, especially in the rainy season, uh, when the powder would get all wet, you know, was not really equipped to deal with us somewhere uh, facing huge numbers of, of, of well-armed opponents who had access to weaponry through the Trans-Saharan trade. So when they reached the Gambia, they were defeated. And then they realised that trade was what, should, what they ought to attempt. And in fact, some of the Portuguese sources see that as, you know, the, the, the royal sources from the 15th century see this as, as a loss of honour that they'd started by trying to achieve captives through warfare. And then they'd lost their honour and begun to trade instead. But... Um, in, 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 the part of the, in the part of Africa which I write about, which is this re- region, Senegal, Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, Guinea-Conakry, and Sierra Leone, it's, it's through trade. And, it, and, it, and it's part of these trading mechanisms which, had, which developed on from the trans-Saharan trade before. But, of course, we, we also shouldn't generalise. As I mentioned at the start of the interview, you know, Africa is multiple worlds. So in Angola, for example, where the Portuguese colonialism and trade really gets going in the second half of the 16th century, um, warfare and colonial warfare is very important. Throughout the 17th century, you have armies, uh, Portuguese armies and Brazilian armies, and using African allies often, uh, waging wars in in the interior of Angola, which are a very important pro- part of the process by which slaves are exported to the New World. So it varies in different areas, but in, certainly in the area which I write about, it's particularly related to, um, to trade. Mm-hmm. What did the Portuguese have that the, uh, I don't want to use the word Africans, because that covers a lot of ground. The people they traded with, what did the Portuguese have that these people wanted? Well, one of the fascinating things is that, uh, especially the first two centuries, I mean, the early period, which is the period I write about, you know, what's essentially being traded are monies, currencies. So, you know, you have a lot of iron, iron bars, iron bars are a major form of currency. Cloths, which were known as panos, cloths were a unit of currency, particularly in Senegambia, but also in um, other parts of Africa, parts of Angola, parts of what's now Congo. You have copper. Copper is a major export. And copper rods are a form of currency in what's now um, Nigeria and Cameroon. Um, so, and, and then you have cowries, cowries, which the Portuguese, when they reached Asia, when they reached Goa, um, they brought cowries from the Maldive Islands back as ballast in their ships, which they would then trade in places like Benin in West Africa. So actually what is usually traded, particularly for the first century and a half of the of the Atlantic trade, is forms of money. Really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's interesting. So uh, where did the, again, I'm having trouble with this word, the many kinds of Africans, let's put it that way, where did yeah. they get the slaves they traded? So there were many different mechanisms for enslavement in, in, in West Africa. As I've mentioned already, warfare is one of them. Uh, and a very important one, you know, war captives uh, are often seen as the pr- as the primary victims of the of the transatlantic slave trade. But then, within each kingdom, there were there were judicial processes related to enslavement. Um, cr- criminals might often be uh, sent into slavery, and also debt. Uh, there was a, there was a, often a correlation between a debtor and, and, and enslavement. You would often 
people would often be pawned, put, used as pawns uh, as surety for debts. And if the debt wasn't paid, then the pawn could be sold into enslavement. So these were some of the key mechanisms for, for, for enslavement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was no shortage of slaves at any time? Did the Portuguese get all they wanted? Do you, or is it possible to answer that Well, um, that's a difficult question. Um, there are times, uh, in general, the Portuguese, the, the focus of the slave trade moved from one part of Africa to another as there was, as the human population shifted. So, for example, and a very good example of this is Angola. So, my book focuses on the region I've discussed already, um, and, that, that, and that region for the 16th century was the major region for the transatlantic slave trade. But in the 17th century, the, certainly the first 60 years or so of the, of the 17th century, when the, when the volume of the slave trade really uh, takes off, it's particularly Angola, which is the heart of the transatlantic slave trade. Um, but then there's a major demographic impact on Angola. So we know that by the second half of the 17th century, um, Angola's populations, particularly around Luanda, the capital, is it has been decimated. But that's when the focus of the slave trade then shifts to what's now the region of Nigeria, um, Benin and Togo and that part of West Africa. So in general, the trade shifts according to patterns of demography, warfare uh, and violence and trade. Uh, and that is, uh, and then by the 18th century, and when Angola has its population has recovered, then you have another focus on Angola. So those are the kinds of patterns which have a long period. Although my book obviously doesn't deal with that whole period. Mm-hmm. Uh, we already mentioned resistance. Uh, could you talk a little bit about slave resistance? Well, I mean, it, it, I think there are different types of resistance we ought to focus on. There's first of all, I mean, one of the things that my book argues is that in general, it's the people's in that part of West Africa I write about, who are under most political pressure, who their leaders turn to the slave trade, hoping that alliance with the Portuguese will shore up their position. Um, but while they make, while those elites make those alliances, as I show in the book, in every place where the Portuguese settle, the people often attack and burn down the Portuguese settlements, and they're not, they're, they're not, they're not safe there. So actually, there's constant resistance from the people who are most likely to uh, suffer from enslavement in the African communities themselves. Um, then, of course, when it comes to uh, to the history of, my, of, of forced migration, as, as the Nigerian historian Nenikori put it, um, on the slave ships and in the slave communities, I mean, you cannot study the history of slavery without realising that every time there's a slave community, there is resistance, there are escapees, there are runaway communities, the maroon communities, and that's a that's a fundamental part of the institution of slavery in the Atlantic world. Mm-hmm. Um, let me, uh, we're almost done here. Uh, I know we've taken up a lot of your time, but I want to ask one question, which I think is uh, very important, and I don't know the answer to it. Uh, you do touch on it in the book. At what point did slavery become racialized? And please talk about the area in which it wasn't, and then, yes. you know, and the cultures in which it wasn't, and then how it became racialized? Well, that's a, a, absolutely a very important question. And again, it, it's something which I think varies um, from place to place according to the time at, when, at which things happen. So, for example, in Cape Verde, one of the arguments of the book is that you do have racial ideas developing very early by the 1550s, by the 1560s, and that they are fundamentally mentally connected to this fact that this is the region where the major transatlantic slave trade is developing. Um, and so you can trace connections from that to pictures which then develop in other parts of the Atlantic world in Angola from the later 16th, early 17th centuries. And But the idea of 
I think actually you can trace this to the idea of Africa itself, as I mentioned, the invention of Africa. You can trace this very interestingly in the in the British slave trade. So the very first trading company of the British going to Africa, which starts in the 17th century, they don't refer to Africa. They refer to the company trading to what was called Guinea and Boni. So this is the coast of Guinea and ben, what's now Nigeria. But then you have the Royal African Company developing in the in in the 1660s. And so this is a clearly a sign that Africa is a place that Africans can be generalised. And that really, to me, suggests the growing racialization of the idea of the African um, by that time and how it is, of course, fundamentally connected to the growing British involvement in the slave trade, just as the, that rise of that idea in Cape Verde in the 16th century was related to the Portuguese involvement in the slave trade at that time. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Uh, Toby, thanks so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. We've taken up a lot of your time, as I said. Um, I'd like to close the interview, if I could, um, with our traditional final question on new books in history, and that's what are you working on now? Well, my main project at the moment is I'm I'm writing writing kind of the follow-up, which is on the 17th century, um, but it might extend a bit more than that. But it's really looking, but it's looking more comparatively. So comparing the region I've looked at now, particularly with the Angolan region, and their interactions with the Atlantic empires and how the different, um, the different interactions which they had tell us about the ways in which Africans were able to have agency in their relations with European trade, have that kind of political power which I talked about, but also how the different structures which they had shaped the different histories and trajectories which those regions had. And I'm particularly interested in economic history, actually. I mentioned in passing, you know, the, imp- the impact of... In the import of currencies into West Africa. But I think that that had a fundamental role in, in economic change in, in pre-colonial West Africa. And that's, of course, really important when we think about or, you know, the roots of African economic underdevelopment uh, and its relationship to long-distance trade. I th- I'm really interested by looking at, looking at how thinking about the import of currencies and economic changes related to that might have a really important way of helping us to look at economic change in Africa over the long durée. So that's what I'm trying to do at the moment. Mm-hmm. Another 10 years? I hope not. I hope not too. <laughs> I've, I've, already had, I've already had 15, so I'm not too bad. <laughs> okay. Um, let me tell everybody that today we've been talking to Toby Green about his book, The Rise of the Transatlantic Slave Trade in Western Africa, 1300 to 1589. Toby, thanks for being on the show. Thank you very much, Marshall. I enjoyed it very much. Absolutely. And let me tell everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you for listening, and I hope you have a great week.